Welcome to Leaders of Analytics. Leaders of Analytics is about data-driven decision-making, modern business leadership, and the use of data and artificial intelligence in business and society. Each episode investigates the strategies, tools, techniques, and leadership required to succeed in a world increasingly driven by data and analytics. The show's guests share their stories and experiences in a way that helps you understand the big concepts and small details that make all the difference in today's world of business. I am your host, Jonas Christensen, and I hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaders of Analytics. Have you ever heard of synthetic data? Synthetic data is data that is artificially created from statistical models rather than generated from actual events. It contains all the characteristics of production data minus the sensitive stuff. By 2024, 60% of the data used for the development of AI analytics projects will be synthetically generated according to Gartner. The reason organizations may use synthetic data over actual data is because you can get it more quickly, easily and cheaply. But there are concerns with this approach because synthetic data is based on models and algorithms designed by humans and their biases. More data doesn't necessarily equal better data. So is synthetic data a brilliant tool for improving data quality, reducing data acquisition costs, managing privacy and reducing overfitting? Or does synthetic data put us on a slippery slope of hard to interrogate models that are technically replacing fact with fiction? To answer these questions, I recently spoke to Minaj Rehman, who is the CEO and chief data scientist at CIDA, an AI-enabled academic and industrial research agency. In this episode of Leaders of Analytics, you will learn what synthetic data is and how it is generated, the most common uses for synthetic data, the arguments for and against using synthetic data, when synthetic data is most helpful and when it is most risky, and how to implement best practices for mitigating these risks, and much more. Let's get to it. Here's Minaj. Minaj Rehman, welcome to Leaders of Analytics. It is so good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, you are most welcome. And I'm really excited about today's episode because we are going to be talking about synthetic data first and foremost. And this is a topic that is exploding at the moment, just like synthetic data itself is exploding. And there are forecasts out there saying that if it hasn't already, it's going to overtake in terms of volume, what we would call real data. But before we get to that, we should hear a little bit about you and your background. I've already given an intro of you, but in your own words, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your career background and what you do? Sure. My name is Minaj, if you didn't know that already. I am a CEO of a company called CIDA, which is an acronym for Psychometric Data Analysis. What my company does is use psychographic data from large organizations and create behavioral pipelines to predict 
the next move on consumers on your platforms, it could be social media, it could be uh, data in your data warehouse to find out the pockets where you can optimize your marketing and sales pipelines entirely based on how your consumers segment themselves on psychographic spectrum. We do all kinds of other work in terms of creating reports, research reports, infographics, white papers, and uh, other material that helps C-suite decision-making people to find relevant information that helps them make decisions for their organizations. Very interesting. And I think you also have a bit of an academic background. Is that correct? I do. I also teach, um, and I don't get the time to do that very often anymore, but I do visiting lectures at different universities. I love to talk about my findings and my research. I do that in different universities online these days. But other than that, I kind of miss talking to students. Yeah, and the last couple of years have been especially hard for that. Whether you are a full-time university lecturer or not, it's been all online. So why have you not been doing these lecturing and teaching for a while? Primarily because I don't have time enough. You know, I can spare towards building materials that I think that will be useful for students in understanding the bigger picture of um, data science and covering all the topics uh, like deep learning, different um, algorithms within machine learning. Because I think if I have to deliver something, I wanted to be something that I would like to watch. And that takes a lot of times, hundreds of hours. And I recently did a presentation for all the IEEE member universities in Pakistan. I think that was 35 or so universities. Was a huge success. Around 15,000 people saw that and it received really good attention and reviews, but it took such a long time that I had to delay a lot of my other projects. So as much as I would like to do that, I still have to prioritize my work. But I do help people in their quest to learn different things. You know, I sit on advisory boards in different companies. I help different universities design the data science program. So that's what I do. But it's a huge undertaking teaching a whole course. Yeah, I hear you. I uh, did some teaching the last couple of years as well. And I've had to reduce that this year because of the same thing. It, it is very time consuming and you cannot give 50% into someone's degree. You got to do it properly so that they get the education that they deserve and have paid for. So I hear you there. I think it is perfect to have you on here when you are a teacher, because you're going to teach us today about uh, synthetic data. There is a saying that uh, if you want to learn something, you got to teach it to someone else. And that's what we're going to do today. But before we get to that, Minaj, how did you get into the world of data science in the first place? That's a very interesting path. And you know, now um, I get a lot of questions about if that's possible for people uh, from seemingly unrelated domains, such as social sciences. People keep uh, sending me messages about, is it possible for them to learn data science at all since they don't have a bachelor's in computer sciences? Uh, and I somehow become the model itself for the fact that you know, it's possible to come from different domains. We have people from psychology, from bioinformatics, from physics, from social sciences, in data science, um, we've done great work uh, who are in different um, recent institutes. Um, recently, chief data scientist of H2O, uh, Leland Wilkinson, who died like a week or two ago. He actually had a degree in psychology. Such a fantastic researcher. I'm very inspired by his work. I have benefited a lot from his research and his talks. And apparently, if he does not have a formal computer science education, 
from a university. So I think to become a scientist, all you need is to be objective, to be curious and be skeptic about the world around you, to ask the right questions and be stubborn enough to go after that and find the solutions. And during the process, you can learn what you think is lacking in your toolkit. And for that, you don't need someone's permission. And one of my core problems with modern education system is that it relies too heavily and judges people based on their past achievements and label them in different boxes. So if you're a computer scientist, why cannot you study law? Um, so if you're coming from social sciences, why cannot you become a computer scientist? And do you really have to be in school for four years to be able to learn those things? I, for one, do not believe that that's true. I mean, what did people do when there were no universities? People just did whatever they wanted and, you know, they perfected that through their lifetime and then they become authority once they have achieved some degree of success in whatever they're doing. And no one judged them because they don't have a degree. So why should learning now be pigeonholed into small boxes? So I came from a social sciences background in the sense that I have a bachelor's in English literature and political science. And then I went on to do my master's, which was an MBA. And then I went to Sweden where I studied business admission in general. And then my core competencies were international business communication and culture with German language. We also studied a lot of psychology courses. And then I started working towards personality psychology, which was very interesting to me in the sense that it had huge applications for collective human behavior displayed through consumer buying decisions. And I tried to apply what I studied in my degree to businesses. And it turned out that businesses were very interested in finding out and predicting the collective behavior of their consumers. And that turned into um, the company itself. And I talk about that on my podcast as well. I invite brilliant researchers and CEOs um, of different companies to talk about their expertise and it picked up from there. So I think where you're coming from is less important than uh, what you know in data sciences. And that's one of the reasons that I'm here. Brilliant. And I've for one, can subscribe to that. The people I've worked with in the last 15 years have come from such a variety of backgrounds. And of course, when you and I started in, in data science, there weren't these degrees that are now there in data science or what have you. Uh, so people came from lots of backgrounds, including psychology or computer science or finance or accounting or biology or what have you. As long as they were numerically literate, uh, they had a very good chance of uh, succeeding because it's about logical thinking and understanding and solving problems in a logical manner to a large extent. Now, Minash, there is so much to explore in what you just said, and perhaps we can return to it later in the podcast. But what I really want to do now is start the conversation around synthetic data, because a few weeks ago, I put a post out on LinkedIn showcasing this explosion in synthetic data and how it's going to potentially be used across a number of use cases in various industries. And you were one of the first people to comment and saying something along the lines of synthetic data can be important, but it's also very risky and a slippery slope if you don't know what you're doing with it. I invited you onto the podcast straight away, and here we are today. We're going to be talking about the do's and don'ts of synthetic data. So perhaps to start with, could you Talk to us about what synthetic data is and how it is generated in the first place. I think that's a very good um, point to kickstart our conversation 
if we make a clear distinction distinction about what synthetic data is um, as juxtaposed to real data, the reason why it's called synthetic data is because it does not have um, physical existence, or let's say does not come from real life observations or experiments that we and create to gather data that we subsequently run analysis on machine learning analysis or deep neural networks. Now, there are different ways to create synthetic data. And I guess creating that synthetic data is probably lesser of the question. And the more important question is what you're going to use the data for. And by saying that, I'm also bifurcating the conversation into the public and social sciences domain as much as the hard sciences. So what it means is that whatever data we have, its implications decide its usages. So synthetic data itself is the process by which we create data that does not exist in order to compensate for the lack of data. So that means if we have imbalanced classes in a data set, in order to make those classes balanced, we're going to be creating synthetic data through generative algorithms to make sure those less representative classes are becoming balanced. And also the distribution of those less balanced classes are going to be exactly the same in synthetic data that it was in the real life data. Now, there are repercussions for that. There are benefits for that, of course, but there are also repercussions for that that can have severe consequences, which we can, of course, talk about. But to answer your question, synthetic data is the data that does not come from intentional acquisition of data. Yeah. Okay. So you touched on a few things there. And what I'm especially interested in now is, well, what are some of these common uses of synthetic data that we see out there? Okay. So first of all, when you talk about synthetic data, we're certainly talking in reference with AI in data sciences. And one can ask, what are the most common applications for AI itself before we actually even talk about data, which is computer vision or the audio data. And then we can talk about the NLP, natural language processing. Then we could talk about the tabular data, like the classification and regression problems with that, time series data. And then we can certainly talk about the bioinformatics or drug discovery process. So these are some of the domains that most of the investment and research in AI is being done. Now, most prevalence of synthetic data, when we talk about that, is in computer vision problems. And the reason being the data that we can create safely out of thin air is only applicable in computer vision. Because if you look at the early papers, and let me recommend actually a book if someone wants to actually dig deeper into the generation process from the top to bottom, it's called Synthetic Data in Deep Learning by Sergey Galenki. It's such a wonderful book. It goes through the history of um, how computer vision problems actually started. And one of the seminal papers that he talks about is by Maxwell Clavis in 1971, and it's called On Seeing. And he talks about um, how the whole idea of finding out what's happening um, in an image came about from the point of view of eliciting the curves within the image, the concave and convex curves within the image, which you could also call the features within a deep neural network. And when you talk about um, these curves and their contribution towards classification within an image, you talk about the whole idea that if you were to create um, these curves from a synthetic 
data perspective, you will simply be recreating those formations within images. Let's talk about, put that in perspective from a cats and dogs classical example. So if you have a lot of pictures of cats and dogs, and then you go on and create synthetic data, our data set that isn't huge, we use a classical technique of data augmentation in which you can flip and rotate and you know zoom crop with lightning changes and resizing of the image, all kinds of manipulation to make sure that our algorithms um, are performing well on the test data set as well. Now, once you do that, one of the things that you realize is that when you create synthetic data, it's almost the same distribution as you have in the original cases. Now, one might ask, if you have to actually recreate and generate those distributions, why is there a significant need to do the same thing that's already been done? Is it for the class imbalancing problem or is it the natural constraints that people have even in human vision to identify things. For example, if it's too dark, human beings might not be able to identify the same objects. If it's flipped over, so for some people, it might be easy. For some people, it might not be. For example, in neuroscience, if you take children and you show them an object, like really young children, about two or three years old or four years old, they're still human beings, they still have human vision. But if you flip the object, they won't be able to recognize that. For them, it's a different object. In development and psychology, there's a concept called object permanence. So you see young children, when they have their mother in front of them, they're very happy. But if the mother goes away, like back on the back of the children, they will assume that the object has been removed and they start feeling insecure. And the fact is that the mother has not simply vanished into thin air. It's just like the child cannot see the mother anymore. And that lack of that image in front of the child makes him or her believe that, you know, the mother is not there anymore. So even in human vision, the cognition part comes from our parietal lobe that is responsible for perceiving the situation in front of you. Now, when it comes to computer vision, these augmentations that we do with the data is for the only reason that our algorithms are better able to perceive what's happening within the image. Now, if you do that, you are creating the data that might be able to actually help you with the recognition of the images, but that the story does not actually end here. It poses a lot of other challenges. For example, let me give a concrete example. OpenAI had a project with this robot arm that's playing with the Rubik's Cube. And uh, I talked about that in my recent presentation in the university where the accuracy rate in the simulation for that robot arm was 90%. But um, in real life scenario, it was given a Rubik's Cube and the accuracy fell down about 60%. And that's a very worrisome result for someone working on a scale in a production model, because you do not normally see fluctuations of models from 90 to 60%. And if there are millions and millions of dollars at stake, you'll be very careful about you know, making such experiments. So we have a recent fiasco at Zillow where the data science turned out to be a huge failure and they had to you know, split the whole arm because of that. So the mistakes of data scientists can be pretty expensive. So you have to be very careful. So there are definitely lots of arguments for and against using synthetic data. Could you tell us about these arguments and which ones you find most compelling personally? Well, I'm all for experimentation and exploring the boundaries and finding out if our new uh, trick works or not. The question is... Uh, 
what is the acceptable cost for those experiments? If the cost of those experiments actually include human collateral damage and huge profit damage, then certainly not all businesses will be very happy about them. As for the synthetic data, it's just one of the techniques out of hundreds and thousands of techniques that data scientists have in their toolkit. Question is, when do you apply what technique and to what accuracy and what gives? Is it a worth while experiment conducting or not? Now with synthetic data, as we talked about most of the applications are in vision. Outside of the vision, some of the applications for synthetic data would include the system logs for fraud and intrusion detection. Then we have neural programming, bioinformatics, and to some extent, natural language processing. The question is, should we do that or not? As for synthetic data, if it does not affect any KPI or it does not pose any risk for the business or, or let's say human subjects involved um, in the process, um, then I'm all up for it. But then you also have to match it with the benchmarks of already existing KPIs. So for example, on a certain benchmark, you have a score of 75% accuracy with some other models. And using synthetic data, if the accuracy goes up, it speaks for itself. If it doesn't, it's not worth it. Now, for total experimentation in research settings, that's a very good idea. For example, the simulation for flight simulations to train new pilots, that's one of the areas in which synthetic data can be very helpful. Now, that all can be done, but again, you have to be worried about the fact that when the anomaly comes or when that one example comes up, that the algorithm cannot predict because it was not in the training data set, that's where the most risk lies. And if you can mitigate the risk or completely offset the risk, then it's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, and you described the example of training pilots, and we use typically flight simulators there, which are arguably a synthetic data environment, but it is replicating typically the real world, flying through a space that's a digital map of a real location, say they're trying to land in New York or something like that, and and all the dimensions are similar. In, in some of these use cases with synthetic data, do we have situations where the, shall I say, the data set is not necessarily a complete and replica of the real world, and therefore there's some risk in just misinterpreting the data itself? Well, I think that is a risk in every situation in which synthetic data is created. Uh, for example, let's talk about pilot simulation because that's something that I've done. You know, I really enjoy flying the planes in the simulation. So you have this simulator that you can use, you know, turn on the knobs on the left side and the right side. You have to rev up the engines and then do the takeoff. And what I understand by very brief and rudimentary knowledge about um, flight simulation is that, you know, as long as you take the right steps and, you know, you train pilots on that before they actually get to a real flight. It all fine. It actually is imminently desirable because you want your pilots to be confident um, and timely in handling those knobs and they're getting comfortable with that. The question is when the event happens that that is anomalous or the thing that you're not prepared for, what are you going to do with that? Now, for most things, if you take a flight and let's take it, an eight-hour flight, most things that you would find in simulator would replicate their real life because unless there is an anomaly um, or let's say a bad weather situation or a failure in engine component or something else, it should work just fine. So for this specific scenario, 80 to 90% of what you have been trained on would actually replicate the real life. But with 10%, that 10% that you're not trained on, which we can call the anomalous data, uh, what are you going to do then? Uh, one answer could be you just certainly will have a senior pilot with you in real situations. So you know there is no risk of 
let's say, messing up. But in other domains, in the literature of synthetic data, this is called domain randomization. When you randomize the domains and you find different other domains where that synthetic data is not going to help and that's going to push down the accuracy, that's where the concern actually starts arising. And like I said, in pure research, that's imminently desirable. But if you have a risk on human subjects or let's say policy implications or the benchmarks that have already been established, then that becomes a problem. So you've highlighted some uses of synthetic data and some potential modeling techniques. But could you explain to listeners in real detail, maybe perhaps give some examples of how this could be used, where some modeling techniques and data types are more suited to synthetic data than others? So, sure, I can give you some of the examples. The domain that has benefited the most from synthetic data uh, is probably uh, computer vision, um, and that's where most of the applications are uh, for AI at the moment. Think about what computer vision is. So there are multiple usages of computer vision as we speak. One is the image recognition. You have to segment objects. Then it's in autonomous driving. You can use it to create art. You can also create it to have images that are augmented. For example, you have low-resolution images, and you um, encode them into basic latent space, and then you decode it for a higher resolution. Then we have generative adversarial networks that create images um, out of scratch, you know, with no real information. So in that way, what you, what you can do is that you can retain a lot of information about images or um, let's say different kinds of art or photography taken from the drones and all other images that we need to enhance or pre-process them. Now, what are the Emerging usages of synthetic data is in CGI-based programming. So where you have CGI effects like in movies behind you, there is different scenes. You can create physics-based simulations to create new artifacts and things like this. So that's one area that can be used in, and that's predominantly for the entertainment purpose, um, or let's say to augment our current images that we have. Now, there's a very interesting project by Louis Bouchard. Um, I think he shared it on his YouTube channel also, where he take old family photos and then, you know, augment them to a higher resolution image of the same photos. So that could be a one area where synthetic data can actually make a lot of difference. As for the applications in other fields like bioinformatics or natural language processing, that's something that I'm not very confident about the synthetic data can actually help because let's talk about and do the brainstorming together. So if you have a natural language text and you want to augment that data by adding more words or by adding more letters, what you essentially have is the same structure of the language. You have alphabets, you have words, you have sentences, you have paragraphs. But if you're augmenting the data that is already there, like just creating different permutations of the same data, is that actually going to help with the accuracy? My intuition is absolutely not. Unless you have a research that shows that you know adding more data can actually help, that probably isn't a good use for NLP. As for bioinformatics, could be because we have, for let's say in drug discovery, it's very hard to have balanced classes. And to explore different types of compounds and drugs, you have to have them in abundance to create that. You can use a synthetic data, but how relevant would that be for the diseases and what the efficacy levels is? That's opening another Pandora box. Mm. So again, back talking about the risk of subjects involved and so on as well, and the harm that the potential use can do is important to consider. So thank you for that. That was really clear. One argument that you've already touched on is that synthetic data can help companies build 
these data repositories to build models, train them, and do that in a cost-effective manner because they don't have to collect data. And that can actually be quite costly, of course, from time to time to go and collect real-world data. When is it appropriate to start a project with synthetic data as opposed to collecting real-world information? I guess that's more of a research question where you can augment the data to find out if the trends continue the way that there are, how it's going to look like. For example, let's take a vial of gas at the number of COVID patients. So if you're trying to find out some um, latent representation of what causes COVID, what are the risk groups, what are the risk ages, are there any demographics involved in that? So once you have this global data and you have this regression modeling to find out what features are more important and to classify if this person is going to develop COVID-19 or not, then you can synthetically increase the different classes or different demographics to find out that if the speed of those demographics were to quadruple, is that going to affect um, the likelihood of developing the disease or not? So for example, to drive the point home, so in Australia, if you say that if you make a hypothesis that people who are going to develop COVID-19 would be between 18 to 35 and they're going to be males, and you only have 350 cases. So what you're going to do is you're going to simulate that data and expand it to hundreds and millions of people to see that if that hypothesis holds true, if the numbers exceed. So you artificially scale the information that you already have and then see if it works or not. It's the same with the drug discovery that if you scale it um, to a whole human level or let's say in a situation where uh, you have more information, is that going to change anything about the compounds that would make a good drug? Well, what I'm essentially trying to say is that at scale, is the hypothesis going to stay true or not? And that is one situation in which you would really consider using synthetic data. And one argument for not using synthetic data is that it is inherently riskier because it's manufactured rather than records of actual events or information that's been generated from the real world. So in other words, it becomes difficult to identify what behavior the data should include to resemble the real world. And for me, I can definitely see the point in this argument, but I can also see cases where synthetic data could potentially be cleaner than real-world data. What are your thoughts on this point? I think you summarized it pretty well. Lives of data scientists would become very easy if they were a one size to fit everything. And I think the answer to the question depends on the domain that we are using synthetic data for. As we have already talked about computer vision, that's a domain where you can have experiments risk-free. But any domains in which there are human costs and there are monetary costs involved at scale, that data or research is going to be used for the policy decisions. That's something that you have to be very, very about using synthetic data. Uh, now, as for your argument about um, synthetic data being more clean than real-world data, that's absolutely possible because real-world data has a lot of artifacts. When you encode your data into the most simplest representation of the inputs, then when you decode it and scale out those essential features, then you will essentially have the cleanest data that is possible and keeping the most information. So theoretically, the argument is correct. You would have more cleaner data than the real world data. But again, do you really want that clean data? Because in real life, you would have a messy data always, almost always. And you should be able to tackle and find out the ratio of the noise and signal, and then make your decision based on that. Most Many times um, the information, or let's say the lessons are included on those artifacts. So they're not necessarily unnecessary data. 
Um, so you should have some kind of expert when noise and signal, because if you're only relying on clean data, I don't think that, that that's a real picture. Mm-hmm. I like that argument. So you're saying that your model that has to work in the real world actually has to be able to work on that real world data that is messy, is dirty, and we have to find the signal in that noise anyway. Hi there, dear listener. I just want to quickly let you know that I have recently published a book with six other authors called Demystifying AI for the Enterprise, a playbook for digital transformation. If you'd like to learn more about the book, then head over to www.leadersofanalytics.com AI. Now back to the show. So we've talked a little bit about risks associated with using synthetic data. And I'm sort of interested in how you see us mitigating all these risks. So what are some of the best practices for mitigating risks associated with synthetic data? And how do we implement these best practices in our building processes? I think it's a very good question. First of all, I would like to give a huge shout out to Cynthia Rudin and her paper about bias in the data, where she talks about how the data can be analyzed wrongly by describing discriminating a certain group of people based on their demographics. So in social sciences, um, you should be very, very, very um, using synthetic data. So I guess if we were to discern um, or elicit the basic principle that we can use, that would be don't use synthetic data for human decision making, unless it's absolutely clear and there is empirical evidence from all sides and there you have made it sure that all the groups are equally representative and decision is unanimously acceptable. Now, as for the research fields, like computer vision, um, or let's say um, other experiment that does not involve risk and the synthetic data information beats the benchmark, I'm all for it. Because you know, unless you experiment with data, unless you explore the boundaries of what we already know, there would be no progress. And progress is absolutely necessary uh, for all the fields. So that is something that you should absolutely do. As for the mitigating risk, even in fields where you should experiment, like computer vision, um, you should be very careful that the results of those experiments can be misleading. So you don't use those ex- results um, and apply it in, in a production setting without actually having a debate about that. So for example, NVIDIA, I know for sure, uh, is working a lot on synthetic data. And the models that they actually um, use and release its weights and biases for the production and for companies to use, they need to be very sure that they replicate some kind of real-life scenario and the predictions won't be way off the left field. So that's something that big companies are releasing those weights must think about. And all the vendors are actually using that information. They should be also very skeptic about how that's going to fit into their products and services. Because once a precedent has been set, it's very hard to actually offset that information, or let's say that research with reality, unless it fails and you know, it has huge costs. And that's what we don't want. So to mitigate this a risk, what we should do is that to make sure that before we actually take it out of the production for the word to use, be very careful about what you're doing. Let's flip the coin and look at synthetic data as a risk mitigation tool, because you can actually imagine, I would say situations where you can reduce the risk by using synthetic data. Do you agree with this? And and what are some examples that come to mind? 
Yeah, I guess one of the things that pops up in my mind is about using synthetic data in situations where human intervention would be very risky. Um, so let's say where people are risking their lives, let's say firefighters or social workers going deep into flood area zones, people who are researching climate change uh, in the north northern end of the world or in Arctic, before we actually send them, we can you know, send out drones or let's say put a different IoT sensors to find out the on-ground information on humidity, on uh, wind speed and things like this to make sure that before we actually deploy our troops, which are very, very important to us, um, we have the necessary information and we have ensured that you know they will be safe. But that's one thing that can actually help humanity in a big way uh, if, we are, if we are able to actually execute that properly. And uh, we're talking about data here, but I think in very high-risk situations where humans have often not always endeavored to create synthetic environments to handle risky situations, soldiers will practice for war, not by shooting each other in real life, but simulating those things. And we talked about flight simulations earlier. We also have wind simulations. We have simulations for uh, pretending you're out in outer space and you're floating around. So the weightless scenario, all those things. So it is a common thing to simulate situations that are out of the norm for risk mitigation we now have to just think about it in a more abstract way when it's it's a data situation, perhaps. Now, Minaj, you've already mentioned quite a few resources throughout this interview, but I've gathered that some listeners will be sitting out there thinking this is a truly fascinating topic, but it seems very daunting, very big. Where do people start learning about this? How would they go about learning about this? What are some of the materials, books, resources uh, you can recommend? And, and what are the sort of themes that they should be looking at? As I've mentioned before, um, the paper on seeing, I think that was in 50s and 60s. Um, I've already mentioned that. I kind of forgotten the exact date when it was released, but the book um, by Sergeant Nikolai um, on synthetic data and deep learning, that um, is a very informative resource where he talks about different domains where it's being used and what are the possible dangers for using that or the benefits for using that. So that's one reason I would wholeheartedly recommend. Other than that, I guess pointing people towards complicated academic literature is of value, but I want you to think of the problem in a holistic manner and think why would we need synthetic data in the first place for any problem at all? And the answer probably would be that we don't have enough data. Now, the question is not having enough data and having data that's created out of thin air, is that a journey that's worth taking? And when you think of that, then you think about statistical concepts like distributions. And the understanding of distributions are very important. So I would certainly encourage people to go on and think about the distribution, Gaussian distribution, the normal distributions, and these ideas, which kind of construct the core of understanding why the synthetic data is needed in the first place. And once you have this foundational information and then you read the book of synthetic data on deep learning, then you would understand that at least to some level that what are the for and against arguments for this approach and, and if it's worth taking that risk at all. Yes, very good points. So before you actually start playing with the technology itself, consider whether it's worth the risk. I like that. Minaj, we've got a couple of questions left before we finish up. But before we get to that, is there anything else on this topic that you think we need to mention to the audience? 
Yes, I think that's what I've been preaching for a long time to data scientists community. And that kind of gets left out of the discussion that a huge part of decision making comes not only from the objective data, but from the people who are making those decisions. And our biases play a huge role in how we interpret information because data is just data. It's bits and bytes, it's zeros and ones. Making a story out of that and selling that to decision makers, that's something you know that plays a huge role in many organizations. People sometimes become slaves to their biases and even the objective data does not shake their confidence into whatever they believe is right. And that's what I would suggest everyone to keep evaluating their core motivations to make decisions that they're making. Challenge yourself, you know, make sure that you have the tenacity and audacity to think that you are wrong and everyone else is right. So you have to become the devil's advocate in these situations. Why should you actually do the thing that you think is right? And why people who are challenging you on your stance might actually be right. So listen to them and listen to yourself and make an objective decision and then take that decision out to other people and ask them what's wrong with that decision. And only then you can you know, find some semblance of an objective and real decision, because that has a huge impact on not only the performance within the organization, but also the team spirit. Very wise words. So if I paraphrase, model bias doesn't just come from the raw data. It also comes from those who build the models and those who interpret them afterwards and put them into use. Am I correct in paraphrasing like that? Yes, exactly. I mean, there are um, so many books on just that topic from that, you know, how data can be used. One of the books that I can think of, and, you know, I read that when I was already an undergraduate, and that's called How to Lie with Statistics. And many of my friends and guests on the podcast, we have talked about that. And surprisingly, we all have read that book. And that still stands of one of the favorites in, in our bibliography on uh, data science, because you can manipulate the data in so many ways. I think that's the only thing that you have to learn from the whole journey is that how not to lie to yourself. <laughs> yes, I like that. One of my mottos is before we can say that we're right, we have to make sure we're not wrong. So I think that fits in with that. Uh, very well. Minash, we've got a couple of questions left in this episode. So my first question to you is, I'd like you to pay it forward and um, tell me who would you like to see as the next guest on Leaders of Analytics and why? Oh, you've got me into a pickle here because there are so many people that <laughs> I like to suggest who have been on my podcast and very interesting, very talented people with original thoughts. One would be Prashant Natarajan, who's the VP at H2O, and he's a thought leader in healthcare, AI, and such a fantastic guy. And then we also have Frank Corrigan. He is the chief decision scientist at Target and a wonderful person to talk to, very well-read, a thorough economist who has grip on supply chain issues. So he would be one. And uh, a lot of other people would actually fit the bill, but I guess, you know, I'll stay with two before I uh, start a dispute there. Brilliant. And great minds think alike. So uh, Prashant is actually featured on Leaders of Analytics in episode two, but Frank has not been on here yet. So he will be getting my emails in his inbox very shortly. Thank you so much for those two recommendations. Brilliant. Now, Minash, where can people find out more about you and get a hold of your content? Sure. I'm like you. I do a podcast in which a lot of leaders in analytics show up. And it's a long form podcast, two hours, two and a half hours, cover a lot of things. 
work and things outside work and topics that are um, trending. So that's one place where you can actually listen to what I have to say or what other people have to say. And I'm on LinkedIn where you can find me, reach out to me, send a message to me. I'd be more than happy to actually connect with you. Uh, you can also visit my company's website, which is sida.co. And you also can visit my personal website, which is minhaj.com. So these are some of the channels that I'm very active on. That's a very good and very long list of potential sources. Now, listeners, I have listened to Minash's podcast and I do follow him on LinkedIn. And there are definitely two sources of very interesting and thought-provoking information, not just about the analytics and the data science itself, but all the things around it and things that matter in life and society as well. So I, I do encourage you to click follow on Minash's LinkedIn profile and go and listen to his podcast. Minash, thank you so much for being our Leaders of Analytics. It's been really interesting and I feel a little bit more advised on what synthetic data is, what it can do, and all the risks associated with it. I don't know if I'm more confident to actually go and use it, but I'm definitely <laughs> not going to use it without making sure that I read some of those resources that you mentioned earlier. Thanks again, and have a beautiful day. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast.